Why don't you turn your idea into a reality with Squarespace? Wouldn't that be nice? Yes, it would. Because here's the thing. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind, with beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. So head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. A quick announcement about this show. We are taking the Cracked Podcast on the road. We're going as many places as we can. And this swing, it's going to be two places. Chicago, Illinois, April 11th. St. Paul, Minnesota, April 12th. It's going to be our first ever tour. We're doing very special shows for those very special places. Hello, Illinois. Hello, Minnesota. Aren't you great? You are. I can't wait to see you. And tickets are linked in the footnotes of this episode if you'd like to see those shows, which I hope you will. Anyway, thanks for listening to that tour promotion. And in the meantime, go White Sox. And uh, also the twins are fine. Haha, <laughs> I'm a partisan about baseball. Anyway, let's go to the show. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam and Schmitty the Champ, and I am also, also glad I do not feel like Ernest Hemingway seems to have felt about Hollywood. Because here's the famous statement attributed to that famous novelist Hemingway about the process of having a novel adapted into a movie. Quote, drive to the border of California, throw your book over the fence. When they throw the money back over the fence, collect the money and drive home. End quote. And I take a lot of issues with that. First thing, uh, I, I mean, I don't know how the news has progressed. It's all been terrible. But I don't think there's a fence on like the California-Arizona border where I assume he's coming. So uh, that's that's not even accurate. Took me out of joke, Ernest. Do better. And uh, obviously, more importantly, yeah, he, he seemed to hate all movies made from his books. Uh, maybe he was right to. I haven't seen a ton of them. But a ton of writers have had the surprisingly great experience that is this week's topic. We are talking about movies that improved on the book according to the author. One more time, that is movies that improved on the book according to the author. I think it, it's counterintuitive to what we're told, right? And I, I love that there are so many tales of this, uh, that they're real, and that it's it's something that kind of breaks a, a dogma of the creative process, that all movies turn books into a pile of garbage. No, sometimes movies not only adapt a book well, they find something that makes it even better. And then, very excitingly, the writer has the grace to be like, yeah, that was the way to go. Speaking of writers, our guests this week are two old pals of mine, and they're both returning to the show. Really glad to have them on. Zach Bornstein has written for Saturday Night Live, Jimmy Kimmel Live, The New Yorker, and more. Hallie Cantor has written for Arrested Development, Lady Dynamite, The New Yorker, and more. And, and they're both working television writers, folks, and so they're busy. Very glad they took the time. And that's no mean feat to be doing that, because you have to do really extensive collaborating with an entire industry of people who have all kinds of different skills and preferences and ideas, and they do it well. And, and so I think they're particularly great people, as you'll hear, uh, for kind of getting into the heads of these writers as they saw movies that really, really took a left turn from what the writer did and did a good job of it. I, I think it's a really exciting place to be. So let's get into that place. Please sit back 
or write a novel where you sit back, okay? And then I will adapt it into a film where you ride a dragon into a battle. Isn't that better? It is. I fixed it. You're welcome. Take that. And either way, here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Zach Bornstein and Hallie Cantor. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I was trying to think of when I was a kid and trying to remember, like, when did somebody first tell me that all movies ruin books or the overall concept that, like, Hollywood destroys the printed word? Like, mm. It's just all I think it was some grade school teacher was like, you're reading this. Never watch it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I feel like my first encounter of this phenomenon was like snobs being like the book's bitter. And then I was like, Oh, that's a cool thing to say. And then I would say that about stuff. My brother was a voracious reader. So he was always very snobby because he would always read the books. And if it was a movie made from a book that he hadn't read, he usually loved the movie. I think I'm more likely to like a movie if I have not read the book beforehand. Cause like when you read the book, you have your own idea of what the characters are going to look like mm-hmm. and that, like, you know, what the tone yeah. of it will be. And then a movie like inevitably is just going to mess with that. Yeah. It's just never quite the same, right? Like it almost feels like they remade your head in, yeah. without your permission. Yeah. It's also frustrating cause it feels like people, you know, and you're like, well, th- yeah. it's, you're leaving so much out. Yeah. Like, you have that. <laughs> Harry Potter's skinny and scrawny. He's not a freaking Daniel Radcliffe blockhead. Has <laughs> anyone ever called Daniel Radcliffe? <laughs> Look at this meathead. I, okay. I did not robes. say meathead. I said blockhead. Because his head is like a freaking block. <laughs> <laughs> the kid was 10 when it started. I know. Well, they had no way of knowing, but. Yeah, look, his head is yoked. It's the way it is. I mean, they could have kept him out of the head gym, but. (laughs) Real Humpty Dumpty. And also, that Neville would get so hot. That's true. That was. Well, that was an interesting way in which the movie really had its own take on the books because it made the major change of having Neville be a fucking hunk. I would love if in like there was like a note from the author in book five of the Harry Potter series. I was just like, all right, by the way, now. Neville's hot. It's canon. <laughs> well, I, also, I feel like if Twitter had been invented a little bit earlier, that would have been happening. Yes. Because the mm. way JK tweets now is just, hey, it's n- now a new thing about the whole books. Like, oh, if she'd yeah. had like that they earlier all, in the run. They all shit themselves. <laughs> they shit yeah. on the floor and then just use magic to Wipe whisk it, it away. Yeah. Or that's what they did before plumbing became a thing. Do they? So they, <laughs> use, they confirm that they use magic to get rid of the poop on the floor. But do they use magic to wipe? Or do they just always have toilet paper with them? Oh, God. Or do they just always have poopy buttholes? <laughs> <laughs> or some and kind that... of spell that bidets you. Like... Alex, I know you wanted to stick to our <laughs> topics. Did you think that things would get so off track so quickly? <laughs> Butthole washers. <laughs> I feel like it still relates, and here's why. Uh, wow, bring it home, man. Authors will have a lot of, like, crazy kooky ideas about... Like even things that weren't in the text of the book. And then when you finally talk to them, it's just like, no, this was always a thing. Because mm-hmm. uh, we were talking before this, not only about uh, the topic today, which is when a movie improves the book and, and the author even knows it. Amazing. But there's also so many examples of authors feeling like a movie ruined their book. Mm-hmm. And like one of them is that P.L. Travers, who wrote Mary Poppins, wanted the movie to have no red in it. 
And that seems hard. You know, that just seems like hard to accomplish. And Disney ignored that because, of course, they did. But what a weird thing to be like, uh, when I wrote the book, it was very clearly taking place in a universe without the color red. Yeah. (laughs) He probably wrote it when movies were in black and white. And it was just like in his head. But he was was fine with other colors, just not red. (laughs) She. What a psycho. We keep saying he. Yeah. (laughs) Also, I have learned that the movie Saving Mr. Banks that Disney made recently-ish, where Tom Hanks is Disney and he's very friendly to Emma Thompson. And the author. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's just like propaganda about Mary Poppins being a positive experience for everyone involved because hmm. she was really mad about all of it. She hated the animated parts, she hated supercalifragilisticexpialidocious which I almost said right, and just hated every element of it. And then when she saw a screening, she demanded massive rewrites. And then Walt Disney reportedly said, Pamela, the ship has sailed. And then moved on. And then Mm. that was just Mary Poppins. Because the author was furious, which is supposed to be the thing that happens all the time. Yeah. That's power, is being able to keep in the color red, even when your (laughs) author is upset. I'm also going to use Pamela, the ship has sailed, anytime anyone tries to give me notes on anything. (laughs) They're not going to get the reference. (laughs) I turned in one draft, Pamela, the ship has sailed. sailed. (laughs) <laughs> but and there and there's tons of other examples of it too. Like Stephen King doesn't like The Shining, even though it's such mm-hmm. a hit movie. That that's sort of the thing that is is sort of the cultural thing we know that happens, right? Like you give a book to Hollywood and then boom. How much of that do you think is him being bitter that the movie is more successful and well known than the book? Oh. Because I feel like I if like you say concept. The Shining to people, they're gonna think of the movie before they think of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Not that Stephen King is like suffering for fans (laughs) i guess also at this point he's had so many books turned into movies that you'd think he doesn't care now but was the shining one of his first ones it was pretty early well he uh apparently with carrie he thought his own book was not very good and it was his very Uh first one that got turned into a movie but he his wife found the pages of it in the trash because he had been typing a draft of Carrie. He was like, ah, this stinks, threw it out. And his wife like found it, unwrinkled it, wiped the cigarette stuff off and was like, no, you should finish this book. And then he did. And, and there we go. Oh, and, that's wow. sweet. So authors don't know anything. That could never happen now because no one's like. No, no like my girlfriend's not like <laughs> rifling through the trash on my laptop. <laughs> you gotta have yeah. some draft in here somewhere that I like. <laughs> I wasn't snooping. I was trying to find an abandoned novel so I could encourage you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there are any other like uh, I think Zachy had a couple like authors who wrote a book where then uh, they were furious about the movie. <laughs> well, one that I I guess the author wasn't upset because he's dead, but I thought was a bad adaptation was. Uh, the Cat in the Hat and the Lorax, <laughs> which are pleasant, like, you know, 12 page books that they stretched into just an hour and a half of nonsense. I mean, is yeah. there a way to stretch like a short children's book into a feature length film that is faithful? Do you think? Because they like by necessity, it just like they have to put in stuff yeah. that wasn't in the book. I guess they could just not be movies, but, you know, you can make money <laughs> That's by unacceptable. making... That's yeah. unacceptable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even, uh, like, Ferdinand is one of my, probably my favorite children's book ever, and then they just tried to stretch it into a whole movie, so they were like, I don't know, pop songs and John Cena, we'll figure it out. <laughs> and I don't hate that necessarily, but it's not the thing. There's a little more leeway with kids stuff, because... Well, because kids are dumb? Kids are dumb. Kids That's are dumb. my major yes. takeaway. <laughs> no, we, we got to cut that. that out. My my audience is all kids, so <laughs> I can't have them hearing that. But it's just that, it's like you were saying, that they just, you have to stretch it by necessity. Yeah. With like Harry Potter, or Game of Thrones or whatever, you're crunching. Right. And then expanding. people get mad about the reverse, that like, weren't Lord of the Rings fans like so mad that like Tom Bombadil wasn't in the Oh, movies? yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I, I've never read those books, and then I thought the movies were great. Me neither. <laughs> but then I later learned, oh, apparently there was a whole a other character. A beloved character, yeah. But I think it's probably eh. better to cut stuff out than to just put in a bunch of <laughs> other stuff that wasn't in the book at all. Like, I feel like cutting is more easily forgivable. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Well, my main takeaway from learning he existed was, oh, he must not be very interesting. That's funny. Which fans of the Tom books? Bombadil fans are turning this off <laughs> oh right now. God. People love him. The replies are blowing up right now. <laughs> Bombadil heads freaking out at us. Bombadillos, as they're called. Bombad- I went to uh, Bombadildos. That's way better. Yeah, that, that would be. No, like, that's yeah. my that's my disparaging name for them. They call themselves Bombadillos. Oh, I see. I went to a talk recently with Darren Aronofsky, and he was talking about Requiem for a Dream, which I didn't realize was a book. Yeah, me neither. And he was just, he was saying that it was very easy because he just adapted it with the author. And it was pretty much just like a word for word. He just like kept all the dialogue and all the stuff. I just can't imagine that that book is as good as the experience of watching the movie unless it has the soundtrack somehow. <laughs> like, as soon as you open the book, like one of those Hallmark cards, it just starts playing. How's the Requiem for Dream music go? It's really scary. It's repetitive and sad. Yeah. That's all I remember. I can only think of that. Who was that rapper who did the Requiem for a Dream? No. no. There's, there's a rapper in the movie or something? No, no. There's a Requiem for a Dream song. Are you talking about the flautist who used to play on the F train in New York and would only play the Requiem for a Dream? Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Oh. There was like That's one station. Guy. I think it was the Delancey Essex station where every time what? I went there, the Requiem for a Dream music was playing and I was like, what's happening? Am I a heroin addict now? And then there was another person going, ass to ass. <laughs> yeah. When you mentioned Requiem for the dream, for a Dream and Rapper, my brain started imagining like a Will Smith credits. And let's look at these uh, these authors who were like, oh, my God, what a great change. How'd they do it? And we were talking about Stephen King. Have you guys seen The Mist? The movie no. The Mist? I know the video game on the old Macintosh. <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen or read any Stephen King because it's too scary. I'm the same way. I'm an American spookman. Media. Yeah, so I I was peer pressured into seeing it, mm-hmm. and it wow. is. So you're weaker than us. <laughs> <I guess>. <laughs> <laughs> because you watch scary movies, you're less brave. <laughs> we live such dangerous lives yeah. that we don't we need. We don't to. watch things people tell us to because we're scared. <laughs> you're a coward, though. <laughs> <laughs> My scared has levels. You know what I mean? Um, but uh, the mist. It's a. It was a novella that he wrote. And it's about a bunch of people are trapped in a grocery store where there's this crazy mist all around them and monsters coming out of it. Uh, and then, <laughs> so the evil thing is just like fog. <laughs> it was yeah. overcast. It was overcast in the bread aisle. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King should never go to San Francisco. He'd be terrified. <laughs> <laughs> there is well, there's the whole movie John Carpenter's The Fog, where it's like a fog that's rolls also a in, movie? and then ghosts of old sailors are killing people. Oh, yeah, that's a whole all separate right. movie. I feel yeah. like. The issue is not really with the weather, then. It's like, it shouldn't be called The Mist. It should be called, like, The Monsters Who Keep Coming Out of The Mist. <laughs> it's a catchy title. <laughs> so that's that's the book. And then at the end of it, they escape the grocery store, and they hear on the radio just the word Hartford. Uh, it's, it's in the Northeast, like, all this stuff. So mm. they're like, oh, we'll just drive to Hartford, and maybe we're safe there. Where it's do like, they hear it from? Just one word comes through the radio? Yeah, they found, like, an emergency station or something. And then they're on a road where there's all kinds of monsters around, but they're just trying to drive safely. And so it's a, it's ambiguous, but it's like maybe they will get uh, from Maine down to Connecticut, and then they'll be okay. You know? Oh, that's interesting. So the, uh, the movie, it's sort of the same situation with the grocery store, and then they escape it, but things still seem bad. And then the movie... 
And I, I know I said spoilers for a whole bunch of things in the intro, but spoilers. The movie ends with they just keep seeing monsters and they decide the world is over. We all need to just commit suicide because it's all done. So Tom Jane's the main character in the movie. He shoots everyone else he's with and then he is out of bullets. And so he's like, I'll just step out of my car and let the next monster eat me to die. But then right as he does that, the fog clears and the U.S. Army defeats all the monsters. Uh, and so everything's fine. But then he has just killed uh, his son and everyone he likes. So he was the monster all along. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like that is like a massive improvement on the book, as Stephen King recognized. Because yes. it just like introduces this whole new thing that's way more tragic and mm. devastating than like, you know, anything was before that. Like monsters. All right. But this was about like, you know living with like killing your own family and the grief that would come and his survivor's guilt. And like, this is like, this is great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's not in the book. It's not in the book. So Steven saw the movie and was like, ah, it's good. Why didn't I think that? <laughs> well, kudos Fuck. to him for being able to recognize that yeah. like this new twist was better than his ending <laughs> where they heard about Hartford existing. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> the more we describe it, what a, what a dumb book. Oh boy. <laughs> uh, this is the opposite of I am legend, which had a really cool ending in the book. And then they, they oh, made yeah. it the Stephen King ending in the movie. Because isn't uh, it's been a couple different movie adaptations, right? It's oh, a, I don't know. I just saw the Will Smith one. Oh yeah, it's a because it's a. You're still trying to get him to do the requiem for a dream. <laughs> <laughs> you you've really got an agenda now for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> Willie, my man, <laughs> I'm a fan. <laughs> I saw you bungee jump into the Grand Canyon. <laughs> no, but then when they in the book, it was like he was the one human. In all, can I? I can say spoilers. Oh yeah, we're spoiling everything. Okay. This show, yeah. Uh, he was the one human, and they're all. Everyone else was a zombie, and he was just trying to survive by killing all of them. And then at the end, it was revealed from the like the zombies' perspectives that he was just this like loose vagabond killer <laughs> who just was like going around town killing them. And it was yeah. that's like a good twist. Like he's the monster, exactly. And yeah. in the movie, it was just like he he just like finds a safe haven and survives and the zombies are still just zombies. Oh yeah. He like, he just it. like, he and that lady like cross a bridge or something. Oh, and he blows himself up and then she makes it or isn't it? Oh, cause the DVD I'm remembering now also has two versions of the ending. So one oh, of really? them, they just cross a bridge and the other, he blows himself up so she can go cross the bridge yeah. by herself. I wonder which one Will was fighting for. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that first ending though, like, that's just like you could do that to any movie about monsters or bad guys. It's just like a perspective shift at the end that they're like, we're just innocent zombies trying to live our lives. And this guy's just killing us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the author, I think it's Richard Matheson. And he apparently was upset with that movie. And then there's also a movie called The Omega Man, which is the exact same book, but with Charlton Heston. Uh, just killing a bunch of vampires and never being recognized as their monster or any kind of flip mm. like that. So he was like, how do they keep messing this up every time? Like, it's what <laughs> makes the book good. And they just keep messing it. Maybe it's because movie audiences are stupider and thus less able to do the work of empathy <laughs> required by identifying with the zombies or vampires. They're just like, no, they won't be able to. They already know this guy's the hero. They will not be able to change their minds. This won't track in international markets. Yeah. <laughs> fine, fine. We'll dump it into the rap at the end. But otherwise, that's it. We'll say so in the if rap. You think about it, really, the zombies look good, guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and like you were saying, Haley, about that misstanding, it is like 
you realize, oh, he has this like weight on him now and it's like worse that he survived and it's the most horrifying possible ending. And Stephen King, uh, yeah, was like humble enough to realize, oh, yeah, that was a way to do it. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I feel like he's like earned being humble because if you've written one or two books and they make a movie that's better. You're not I feel, allowed to be humble. <laughs> you would just be more bitter towards the movie, I think. But he's had a hundred movies made of his book. So it's, oh, yeah. He's got a TV show now. It's. Because Richard Matheson, he's probably only had I Am Legend made, and so he's mm. real precious about it, even yeah. though he was right. But, you know, yeah, if you're Stephen <laughs> King, you've got a lot of shots at this. Yeah, got another one in July or something. <laughs> <laughs> got a movie every three months. It's insane. <laughs> and also then, did you guys see the Hulu show, Castle Rock? No. Oh, no. it's like nine Stephen King books into one that, that they smushed into terrifying. one mediocre TV show. <laughs> <laughs> when we got a, since we're talking about it, there's another Stephen King one here, because he did, he's... Never like The Shining because he feels that it's a little bit misogynist uh, and he feels that there's not enough of an arc because Jack Nicholson is just clearly crazy the whole time. Like mm -hmm. there's no mm -hmm. there's no shift into it. He's just crazy Jack Nicholson. All Those are two very good critiques. Yeah. And he also there was a movie uh, called The Lawnmower Man where he sued to get his name taken off it because he was that upset with their version. Is of that his a book. superhero movie about <laughs> a guy who is part man? Is the powers of a lawnmower? He was run like, over by a radioactive lawnmower, and now he can cut grass really fast. It's like it's not that, but it's almost those beats. It's a guy who's doing like experiments in advancing human cognition, with but a also. Lawnmower. And so he takes a groundskeeper and uh, makes that guy smarter, but it also has like a rage virus kind of thing inside oh, it. Oh, interesting. And so it's like, it's not quite that, but it's kind uh, of that. Yeah. All, those, all the bad guys are just like fertilizer that make grass grow really fast. <laughs> <laughs> vroom, vroom, I will stop you, fertilizer man. Right. His greatest nemesis is poo. Yeah, this, this stuff. The lowest stakes, slowest action sequence ever where like grass is growing and he He's trying to cut it. <laughs> but any, uh, and so Stephen King, like, when they don't do it good, he gets really mad. But when uh, The Mist gets it better, he's excited. And then also uh, his book Cujo, which is about, it's like a crazy dog that has uh, a woman and her child trapped in a car. Mm -hmm. And so it's just kind of a cat and mouse game of dog and person. And so the book ends with the kid getting eaten, uh, but the mom escaping. Oh, it's very sad. Terrible. And then the movie. <laughs> you sounded like you're reminding yourself. Oh, yeah. dead. Bad. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Ah. Sad. Ah. Empathy. Yeah. Um, and so then uh, the movie lets the mom and kid live. And mm. Stephen King was glad they made that major change because he felt that when he wrote Cujo, for one thing, he was so high he didn't remember writing it. High on uh, what? He was super addicted to, uh, I think it was cocaine and some other things. Uh -huh. uh, also like pills. Uh, we'll, we will definitely double check that. Uh, and then, starting rumors. Yeah. <laughs> what seems like a very nice, reasonable author. Uh, he was on a lot of drugs at the time. So he doesn't remember writing it. And apparently he was also really, really wrapped up in fear about his young child. You know, just the idea of your oh, child dying. Oh and so he feels that that guy was a completely different guy who wrote the book. And so he was thrilled that the movie huh. went a different way. He didn't remember writing it? Yeah, he he was so high on something that we will double check. Uh, That's that he so just crazy. Didn't remember that you're like you wake up from whatever like you know bender you were on. You're like, oh, was I out partying? Oh no, I wrote a hit book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a great bender to be on. <laughs>
Yeah, he like he just like writes books and watches the Red Sox when he's go- going crazy. Yeah, that's so reason. That's just like any like dad. <laughs> yeah, honestly, if I could take cocaine and write books that were as well received as Stephen King, I would do a lot of cocaine. I think. <laughs> and our sponsor, cocaine. You know, guys. Uh, if you want to write a book, no, don't do that. But that's um, inter- it's kind of nice in a way that if. I've never read Cujo, but if the whole thing is sort of a metaphor for like addiction trapping him and his child and the child dies, then it's it's very hopeful that, you know, he was able to watch the movie version where like they both survive his addiction. Oh, yeah. He got to like see the version he would write now. Yeah, the maybe. older guy. I'm fully just putting this interpretation on the book completely uneducated. <laughs> well, do they give the authors heads up? Like, I would wonder if the first time Stephen King saw Cujo was that when he discovered that the ending was different or would they like in the scripting process be like, That's hey, man, question. just a, a heads up. We're, we're, I know, we're I know with the uh, with the mist, Frank Darabont, the director, told him beforehand. He was like, let me run this by you. I hope you mm. like it. Uh, yeah, but with you, Mary Poppins, she just saw it on screen. <laughs> <laughs> if so. you give somebody or sell someone the rights to your book, then like they could just write a fully different story and be like here it is Zach's novel <laughs> no <laughs> and then you're just in the crowd be like the book was better don't watch it don't like, watch it like do they have to stick to the story at all like are there any rules <laughs> yeah I think it I think it's only whatever you can get in a contract because supposedly with Carrie Stephen King just sold it for great you can just do it because he was brand new as an author. Right. And he was like, this it could have just been get. like a, a nice coming of age book about a girl named Carrie who goes <laughs> that, to the prom and has a nice time. Is that not what it was? <laughs> I haven't seen Carrie, so. What's that? Let's look at some other authors, too. Uh, uh, how about Fight Club? Chuck Palahniuk. Uh, what a famous book and movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Children dying. Children dying. It's sad. It's bad. <laughs> book. Many copies bought. It's good. <laughs> You guys know I'm not a human, right? Okay, cool. Yeah, you're a lawnmower. <laughs> so the, I don't know how well people remember the ending of the movie, mm-hmm. but Iconic. it ends. Iconic. Fantastic. I'm, I'm going to oh, chime yeah, in yeah. on this one because it's the only <laughs> example we're talking about where I have actually read the book and watched the movie. Ooh. Um, oh. And yes, the movie's ending is like much more romantic. Is this where they, the buildings are falling and yeah, they're like and the holding each other? Playing. Yeah, the playing. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. nice. Well, and then uh, do you remember, uh, you want to describe the book's ending too? Like, I don't remember the book's ending that well, but I'm pretty sure that like he doesn't get with the love interest. Is there even a love interest in the book? Or she's like a much more minor role. Yeah, well, apparently it ends with him trying to shoot himself in the head to get rid of Tyler, right. <laughs> surviving, ending up in an asylum, and then he's just in an asylum. Right, and, and that's where he's hint. been like writing the book from. It's one yeah, of those. yeah. Mm. That's the book ending? And that's the book ending, That's yeah. kind of lazy. It's just like a crazy person. Yeah, and uh, and then Chuck Palahniuk, he saw the movie and it was a complete change, but he said he felt, quote, sort of embarrassed of the book compared <laughs> to the movie uh, once he had seen the movie version. And then he said that it was act- like that new ending was very fundamental to, to the actual good version of the story because, quote, the story is about a man reaching the point where he can commit to a woman. End quote. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's completely a case of him just seeing a better version of his story and being like, yeah, that's what I was going for <laughs> the whole time. Because that is not what the book was about. I do. I like the idea that an author can uh, successfully have their movie be better if they either have a lot of humility or are a real grifter, real scammer. <laughs> or just like, that's what I what I meant. Yes. You know, like. That's the first real fight club is take credit for other people's better ending. 
(laughs) (laughs) Seeing the movie, like, I get how it could be about romance, but it does also seem like it's a lot about rage and fighting and and everything else. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I I guess if you're going to try to make that leap, it's like he's coming to terms with his, like, toxic masculinity in order Mm. to be ready to commit to a woman. But, like, no, because he shoots himself in the head. (laughs) (laughs) How, uh, How do you guys feel about vampire fiction? How, how into it are you? Are you about to show us yours? Because <laughs> <laughs> I've got some. I need a few notes. <laughs> it's called Dracula Al and uh, his God, deal. Please write that. Dracula Al. <laughs> That's honestly very compelling. <laughs> it's about Just a nice the- man who thinks about sucking blood, but then decides not to and hosts a podcast instead. <laughs> Dracula Al. It's good. <laughs> so I, I don't read a ton of it, but Anne Rice was sort of the pre-Twilight like person doing it. They're really nailing it. And uh, the movie Interview with the Vampire uh, was on the way out, and she heard that Tom Cruise was cast as Lestat, who is her like, main vampire in it. And so she just started publicly shitting on the movie any chance she got. Why didn't she like Tom Cruise? She felt that he was just not right for it. Quote, it's almost impossible to imagine how it's going to work. Uh, It was 1994, and so I think he was still pretty young and on the way up, but also it it probably seemed like a heartthrob rather than a dangerous vampire. scary old vampire. Yeah. (laughs) Well, was Lestat supposed to be like a dweeb? Because that's the only (laughs) role I cannot imagine Tom Cruise playing. (laughs) Yeah, well, he, Tom Cruise, his image has changed so much over time, you know? Like, I think, I feel like he was seen as less of a weirdo at this time, so it was sort of remarkable that he would be playing a vampire. Vampires are weirdos, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Now, if he did, it would just be like, yeah, I guess that's part of Scientology. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I guess they have vampires now. Got blood sucking. It's like level 14 or something. (laughs) You turn into a bat, yeah. (laughs) So he uh, he was cast as this role, and she was very upset. Uh, she said she would never go to a screening of it. Uh, she told the press that there was, quote, bullshit and foolishness, end quote, <laughs> going on behind the scenes. And she uh, was finally just forced to watch a tape of the movie by the producers. They were like, look, just please, like, take an hour and watch this thing. So she uh, she watched it, and then once she did, she wrote an 8,000-word open letter about it being perfect, impeccable, and extraordinary, <laughs> and said that Cruz's performance will, quote, be remembered the way Olivier's Hamlet is remembered. My God. She really went in the other direction. Did they there. pay her yeah. or threaten her? Because that seems... <laughs> that's a hard turn. Yeah. I mean, I I respect it. It's, yeah. it's cool when people are able to change their minds like that. <laughs> It's also, it's it's such an over-the-top, like, yeah. I, the most important person, have changed my mind, you know? I love it. I bet she just realized it would help sell the book and she'd make more money. Maybe. It's, I'm yeah, being too cynical. Think. Maybe she really loved it. <laughs> I think she just, like, watched it and realized that Tom Cruise is a good actor and very attractive person. <laughs> I um, hate that he's so good. And has so a quiet good. intensity that's yeah. perfect for playing a vampire. <laughs> Also, uh, it's uh, it's 2019, you know, and uh, that's the year that canonically Blade Runner happens in. Is that right? true? Yeah, that's the. It's like they they pan over this horrible blackened LA, and then it's like 2019. It's mm. really it's really. I feel like they were like just two or three yeah. years off. It's coming. <laughs> I think it's it was 2016. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it's based on a, a novel by Philip K. Dick. 
And he uh, had written to his publisher around the time, 1981, they were making this, that he had given up on science fiction completely. He thought the whole genre stunk. Uh, and then they also showed him a script of the movie, like a first draft, and he said that was bad. He was very upset with it. And so he was pretty convinced that Blade Runner would be a bad movie. He was also dying. Uh, and so they were like, well, let's hurry up and show him a cut of what we've got. We just want to piss this guy off in his last moment. <laughs> don't be disappointed with his life's work as he's going into the abyss. Yeah. <laughs> Blade Runner pretty famously, like, they were going to release it, but the studio added a happier ending and a voiceover. They kind of tacked that on. But they showed Philip K. Dick the version without that that is now the director's cut. And he said that... It was uh, so gritty and detailed and authentic and goddamn convincing. And he said that it escalated his writing in a way he didn't even think was possible. Like, wow, he was just wow. so thrilled by the way they did it. And so we got to have that nice thing. What a good thing. That's yeah. nice. That's a nice, humble response. I feel like I'm also not that surprised that he did not like the script. But then when he saw the movie, he was convinced. Because I feel like Blade Runner is a pretty like atmospheric movie that's like not necessarily the <laughs> best script in the world. But, yeah. you know, once you got like the neon and the rain and like Harrison Ford, you know, it's it's like... Oh, this is better than a book. <laughs> right, the script has just lines like a cool building. <laughs> it doesn't play. It's not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys ever been to uh, the Bradbury Building in downtown LA? There, no. It's like it's this very old, really architecturally cool building that they made look ruined for Blade Runner, mm-hmm. and oh, it's cool. uh, it's where some of the like final fights happen and everything. Ray Bradbury. It's coincidentally, no, it's just like another Bradbury. Yeah. But they really worked hard on like, oh, everything will be in these cool old buildings or like these made up pyramids we have. And the script was probably just like uh, Harrison Ford looks at a guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's not cool. (laughs) Is he a replicant? Harrison Ford isn't sure. (laughs) I was just in Times Square and it really does look like Blade Runner. Like it's like the massive video ads and all that. It's like it it can be midnight and it's like daylight amount of light. And it's it's very Blade Runner-y. It's terrible. The sequel, too. I feel like they, they, they really always nail how stuff looks and how stuff could be. Yeah, I wonder how uh, Philip K. Dick would feel about the one that just came out. I mean, he's long dead. But <laughs> yeah, we should ask him. <laughs> would he be into it? <laughs> he's silent on the matter. <laughs> no comment from Philip K. Dick. <laughs> Your silence speaks volumes, Philip. <laughs> well, and, uh, and also with uh, authors, we've got some things here that are not movies or TV shows. Because mm. uh, more and more, especially because of the, I think, current just two more, most popular shows, Game of Thrones and Walking Dead. Both of them bring the author in on like a lot of the writing and putting it together. And they're thrilled about it they just love everything the shows are doing oh yeah well it's also i mean for those those writers those authors they they make so much more money and have so much more notoriety now george r he was just like a guy like in weird flannels and suspenders at home writing these like incest (laughs) novels and now he's like the bell of hollywood and goes to like every award ceremony so he must love it well there are a few other fantasy series that are kind of like it like there's one called the wheel of time by robert jordan oh yeah that one's getting made right now yeah, and they're like finally doing it, right? Yeah. And most people don't know who that is because he doesn't have a show. And with uh, with Game of Thrones, George R.R. R. Martin has said publicly that the sh- TV show's version of the character Osha, uh, people who are not him, put into the TV show that her character is played by Natalia Tena, is like really, really interesting to him in the show. He said that in the books, she is there, quote, to fulfill certain plot points <laughs> and has, quote, a one-note personality. But then he said, quote, when I bring Osha back in Winds of Winter, I'll have Natalia in mind and perhaps give the character more interesting things to do. Oh, huh. that's really interesting because with a series of books like this, you can 
see obviously how like seeing things in the show that he then feeds back into the books and like they kind of are yeah. being melded together now in oh, both yeah. directions the books are being influenced by the show as well as the show being influenced by the books well, I wonder cool. how often that's yeah. happened where the book's still in progress yeah. while the show's being made that's got to be a rare situation well yeah especially with TV where we're sort of only relatively recently advanced, like able mm. to make these really elaborate high budget yeah. shows. Yeah. But so. also kudos to George R. R. Martin for being like, yeah, I really phoned this character in. She was <laughs> super boring when I wrote her. Thanks to you guys for like inventing a character that I can just use now. <laughs> I heard rumors what? he was going on like uh, fan sites too to like <gasps> check out like what people were guessing the ending would be. To and get oh, ideas yeah. for how to write the ending. Yeah. Wow. And he would also, while writing, he'd like ask the like fan boards like, who is this person again? Or like, how does this person, where is this person? And they would oh, yeah. have more knowledge about it than he would. Which is amazing. Yeah, that is, that is a thing where, like, yeah, I think it's two super fans wrote the encyclopedia of the books because oh, he was just, like, turning to them to help him get them together. <laughs> you have to imagine that it puts a lot more pressure on you writing because, like, if you mess it up in the last book, like, not only are you disappointing fans of the books, but you're also then, like, in a recoil effect, disappointing the, the show fans. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like at that Don't let us down, George. <laughs> the show is probably fine at this point. Like I feel like it's even got if he so drops many. The ball, the show will even just if do the book else. sucks, yeah. yeah. Like they've got. Didn't he? They like make him tell them the ending in case he dies. I think I've heard that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. at least heard. That. Yeah, just because like either he volunteered it or they were like, "Tell us, George," and like <laughs> held him down. You know, but uh, yeah. <laughs> But it seems like they're going to be fine. They've got so many writers and producers and people on board now. Like it, that's like one of those like you can't mess it up shows. Yeah, they only you have hope. to make like eight more or whatever. They're, yeah, they're, it's in the can. We would like to thank Squarespace for their support of this show that we do, the Cracked Podcast. And Squarespace is saying, "Hey, Cracked fans are neat." They know about a lot of things. They're interested in all sorts of concepts. Look at this. Look at this amazing group of people. Why don't we let them know they can build a website more easily than any other way by working with us? And you probably know it's 2019 or 2020. If you waited a really long time to hear this episode, maybe you did. That's okay. It sounded like I was judging you right there. I'm not. I'm into it. All I know is you should be building your website with Squarespace. Their templates are created by world-class designers and they're customizable so they can be anything you want to be you online. Maybe it's your writing, products, schedule, resume, anything you want to show the world or just show pals that you give the link to, you can do it with them. And speaking of that link, Squarespace makes buying a domain very, very, very easy to do. It's a great system, and you can get exactly the web address you want, which makes it easy interpersonally. You can tell someone something that you're excited is your website, and then they'll easily find it. You can also put it on a business card. You could put it on a billboard or a plane. If you're very, very, very bold, however you want to do it, do it with Squarespace. So head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash cracked offer code cracked. I am very excited to let people know that the Cracked Podcast is going on its first ever live tour. Maybe you've heard me say that. I really appreciate you listening to that. And uh, if you're new to it, Chicago, April 11th, Lincoln Hall is the venue. And then St. Paul, Minnesota, April 12th. Amsterdam Bar and Hall is the venue. I'm going to keep it brief because I think that's just straightforwardly, self-explanatorily exciting, and I hope I'll see you on the road when I'm there too. In the meantime, 
on with the show. And then, uh, and then with Walking Dead, uh, Robert Kirkman wrote the comics. And then, like, one of the main characters now is this guy, Daryl Dixon, played by Norman Reedus, who was not in the comic. And they basically just made him for the show because Norman Reedus had a really good audition for a part. <laughs> uh, and then he's now everyone's favorite character. And Robert Kirkman said he will never add Daryl to the comics out of respect for the TV show. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't I don't totally understand, but I think he means well. I, I don't get it. That's but, interesting because yeah. the TV show like was based entirely on his book, which like I think still shows respect for the book, but he's like, I will not take anything from the show out of respect. <laughs> when I, and I, I love the idea of like you write a whole book and then the TV show does so well that just suddenly there's a new main character. <laughs> like that does happen a lot with TV shows. I feel like like they'll be making family matters and then they find out mm-hmm. that Urkel's definitely the star. So then just suddenly it's yeah. a show about Urkel. Oh, you know? yeah. The real family matters <laughs> was based on a comic about a family <laughs> that doesn't have an annoying neighbor. And they never put Urkel in out of respect for the show. <laughs> it's just a very normal it's a really family story now. Comic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Blenda, and there's also there's uh, one thing we've got here as far as just how far away a movie can get from the book and improving on the book. Uh, how do you guys like Bond movies? How do you feel about them? James Bond? Yeah, James Bond. Uh-huh. No, movies about bombs. Yeah. <laughs> like the big short. <laughs> I strangely love James Bond movies, even though everything about them I should not like. I don't like action movies. I find them very misogynistic and the character's horrible. But I think I just like that it's like the only British thing that's like not funny at all. It take I th- I like it because it takes itself so seriously. That it ends up being funny. How about you, Zach? Uh, I think I'm in the same boat where I know I should hate it, but it is weirdly satisfying. It, like, scratches some, like, primal itch, but if you look at it from a bird's eye perspective, that's just, it shouldn't exist. It's, like, it's satisfying <laughs> yeah. because it's it's so clearly follows a f- the same format every time, you yeah. know? You're just like, oh, here's the sexy lady. Is she going to be <laughs> evil or is she going to be good? And, like, when's he going to order his martini? Like, you know? It's just, like, checking yeah. off the boxes. You know exactly what you're getting. Yeah. yeah, that like number of women box in particular, not not cool. Uh, they're problematic films. Yeah, I love no, them. No, they're anyway. real bad. They're, there's only uh, three kind of women. There's or four kind of women. There's uh, there's like the M, right? The yeah. tech woman. Yeah. There's sexy bad. Well, yeah, in correspondence good. to the four types of women that you can be in life. <laughs> right. Old yeah. and smart Old and, and not s- fuckable. Uh, <laughs> young and fuckable and evil. Young and fuckable and good. Young and fuckable and, and good. O- other. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and with the and with the movies, they're all based on a string of books by Ian Fleming, and he wrote one book called The Spy Who Loved Me, and people might recognize that as a Roger Moore James Bond movie, but he wrote the book The Spy Who Loved Me as like a big experiment, like instead of being from James Bond's perspective, it's from the perspective of a young Canadian woman uh, <laughs> who has a tryst with Bond, and the book is about how terrible of a guy James Bond is and oh. how bad he would be to be in a relationship with. That sounds. So fun to read. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds uh, much more reasonable, too. I feel like if that was a movie, that would be a good movie. So the so <laughs> yeah. the public hated it. They were oh. very, very angry. Uh, at the book? At the book, oh. yeah. And it uh, Ian Fleming was so upset along with them that he prevented it from being published in paperback. 
And then he sold the rights to the spy who loved me to the producers of the movies. But he said, I'm selling you this name and you cannot use anything from the entire book (laughs) in the movie. And so they just came up with the pretty standard James Bond movie people know. And then the producers had that novelized. So there would be a book called The Spy Who Loved Me that is like the standard James Bond movie. So it was a book turned into a movie, turned into a book, turned into a better Austin Powers movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's the life cycle of all movies. Right. It starts as a book, becomes a movie, goes back to a book, and then Mike Myers uh, just ruins you. (laughs) It's the fourth stage of the life cycle. (laughs) But that's one where, like, I I haven't read the, the original book, so I don't know if they actually do a good job of it or not, but I'm with you that, like, yeah, maybe it's it might be better to like criticize James Bond, but also this is a case of an author just completely throwing himself out. He's like, yeah. I had a good like five word title. That's it. <laughs> Don't use any of it. The rest like, of it. Ian Fleming, believe in yourself a little bit, man. Like he just he published something and then fans were like, oh, we don't like this. Bond's supposed to be cool. And he was like, you're right. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm misogynistic. I promise. Yeah. I'm not trying to take your guns away. <laughs> I hate women. Please. I believe. Please. <laughs> Well, he he like he famously wrote all his books on like an estate in Jamaica. So like he really, I think he nobody was like at his door or something. You know, he was like just reading uh, upsetting things. He really caved very easily. Yeah, yeah. it was pre-internet, so he wasn't like getting you know ruined on Twitter. He probably just like right. read like two <laughs> yeah. like articles. With with any movies like this, I feel like is it? Do you think it's easier or harder to write this kind of thing with the author being? alive or a person you can go talk to, right? Because you can go get all kinds of ideas from them and and advice from them and stuff. Mm. But also maybe they get either furious about the changes you make or if they're alive, you're like, I have a better idea, but I'm too nervous to do it. You know, that just happened with, um, what's the book about the room and the new movie, James Franco? (laughs) Oh, Disaster Artist. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Disaster Artist. It was so it was a guy wrote an autobiography about making it. And then that became the Disaster Artist. And so the but the writers of the movie were the two guys from 500 Days of Summer. Yeah. But the, they talked to the dude a lot. So it must have been weird because he's like anything they add or take away, it's like also his life because it's oh, an right. autobiography being adapted while you're still alive, which has got to be a weird yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And also Vice now with Dick Cheney, which must have been, I mean, that's not from a book, but that's also got to be a weird where the movie's being made about you while you're still alive. Yeah, or even, um, uh, what's the movie, On the Basis of Sex? Uh, where it's, yeah. uh, like, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is around. I feel like I'd be really more comfortable writing about someone's life than writing a movie based on the book that they wrote if they were alive. Because it's like a life, you know, that's like a living, I guess a book is a living thing in a way, but like a, you, there's different ways yeah. of interpreting a life and like finding different stories in it. But like a, a book, I almost feel like it's like something that someone's like spent so much time crafting that I would, I yeah. would be nervous about them mm-hmm. uh, watching my uh, interpretation of it and and not being happy with it. Right, their life hasn't been like poured over and they found the angle they want. Mm-hmm. It's just they did all that stuff. Yeah. I think going from a book is easier though cuz like you've got all the interesting dialogue already written and like you got a lot of the like plot points already there. <laughs> That's true structurally. It is some of the work is cut out for you. It's like a month rather than like years of researching that person. I hadn't really thought of the experience of like you sit down with someone to research them to write about their life. And then just sitting through a story and like nodding and knowing like, no, we're not going to do the part <laughs> where where you went to the grocery store. We're not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it must be hard for people to like have the objectivity to realize what's interesting about them. They just want to tell you stories about like 
this one time that they like saw a celebrity at the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Fahrenheit 451, it's a book that a lot of people know, and it's particularly about uh, you know, sort of the sanctity of text and so on. And then they made a movie of it in 1966. And in the book, uh, there's a character named Clarice who's killed in the first chapter. And then that kind of inspires the hero's journey. Uh, but for the movie, they managed to cast Julie Christie, who's great, amazing actress and everything. And so she just lives through the whole story. And they like get, and there's a romantic element and she gets together with the main firefighter character at the end. And you would think that would be really enraging, especially if you wrote a, bu a book about how books need to be protected. <laughs> and Ray Bradbury loved it. He said the ending was, quote, commiserate with the ending of Citizen Kane. Oh, yeah. Wow. He was that oh. thrilled about it. Sometimes it feels like these, their praise of the movies are kind of just giving the authors an excuse to, like, praise themselves. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. you could never say that your own book is, like, one of the greatest stories ever told. But if it's a movie, it's, like, it's like enough separation from you that you can be like, this is, like, this is the, the great American story. Yeah. <laughs> There's a new one coming out, too, with Michael B. Jordan. Oh, it's out, yeah. Oh, yeah. it's out. <laughs> that one, Ray Bradbury is gone, so we don't know how he would have felt, but they change it so they preserve books by writing them into the DNA of birds. And what? Wait, sorry. Say that one. <laughs> I know. They hide the text in the DNA of This is the bird. plot or something that happened in real life? It's something that they put into the most recent I don't Michael think this B. Jordan in real life. Fahrenheit 451. And so the idea is like, we'll save these texts by copying the text into like a hidden part of a bird's DNA strand. I have so many questions. And then fly the bird to Canada. <laughs> and they like get away with getting the bird to Canada. Like, oh. That's how it goes. So then the idea is, that, is that the birds will pass on this information to the bird children. Otherwise, when these birds died, all the books would be gone. Yeah, I believe you would need to, like, capture the bird and get a DNA sample and like, then re-transfer re the text. with the bird's DNA with, like, a, the full text of a novel. Like, it's not going to make a bird. It's going to make, like, some <laughs> Also, all the books have to be, you can only have words that have G, A, T, and C in it. Right, right. <laughs> it's only four options. So just the title page of Gattaca, the movie novelization. <laughs> So it sounds terrible, but uh, but the uh, the 1966 movie, it's like I feel like it's also a product of casting. But I think you're right too that Ray Bradbury was like, it's my story and Julie Christie. Like now I can say how great it is. It's genius. Yeah, yeah. It's a degree of separation. It's like we need someone to make a movie out of this podcast conversation mm -hmm. so that we can go. This is this is the Citizen Kane of of podcast conversations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those characters are brilliant, beautiful geniuses and very faithful to the original. <laughs> <laughs> well, and let's, uh, since we're talking about movies, The Godfather. It was written by Mario Puzo, and he uh, has had told lots of people later on, quote, I wish like hell I'd written it better. I wrote below my gifts in that book, uh, the first Godfather there. And then it uh, uh, became like the top movie of all time. And he helped. He was involved in the whole process of it and felt that it was like his chance to kind of get a do over it, actually. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm. Yeah. Which is thrilling, yeah, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. apparently I, like I, I like the first two Godfathers a whole lot. And I, I've been told, like, only read the book if you super love it. because yeah. It's not on the same level. I think it sounds nice to get a do-over. I feel like everything I've ever done, I'm like, man, I wish I could do that over. So having a, a do-over would be, I mean, I'm jealous of that. That sounds nice. And there's also, and there's one thing in the book 
apparently a lot of the the book became the movie we get, but also the book fixates on Sonny, who's played by James Caan in the movie. It just fixates on him having a really, really big penis. Mm-hmm. The like, movie or the book? The book does, yeah. That's a big part of it? Apparently it's uh, Pun like nine intended. inches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Apparently, it, it, like there's several scenes where characters just make jokes uh, about how big it is. In like a it's a quote. Did you hear? Sonny's dick is so big that hookers charge him double. Did you know? Sonny's tool is so huge that his wife thanks God he's having affairs. I know they're not jokes. Uh, they just sound terrible. But. I'm confused because he said he didn't think the book was great, but. That sounds amazing, and they should have kept it in the movie. <laughs> I'd right? love to hear the conversation of Coppola with him being like, look. I don't think we're... We have yeah. a... We love the book. We just... No you know, cuts. It's only... No cuts. We're, we want to keep everything. <laughs> just a couple things. <laughs> also, the title of The God Penis, we're going to tweak it uh, slightly. There's one bit in the movie that I, until I read this, I never really noticed or paid attention to where there's that <laughs> wedding at the beginning. There's one part where Sonny, they cut to Sonny having like having sex with a bridesmaid off off later. And then later she's at her table and just doing a long thing gesture with her hands to people. And they all kind of laugh a little bit. Oh, all right. It's so like it's still in there. It's like a total of three seconds of the entire movie. Wait, that's in there or that's a deleted scene? That's in the movie. Yeah. Oh, oh so they kept the big dig. So it's like there's like an allusion to it, but in the book it's constantly talked about. And then that bridesmaid is an actual whole character who you follow a lot and you see her do a lot of stuff. And you even see her long after she has anything to do with Eddie Corleone's because Sonny dies like in the movie. Uh, And then we see her with a new partner in Las Vegas. Just the casket has like a indent that goes up halfway down. (laughs) Just like the wood is adjusted as a little. Most of him is six feet under, but a certain part is only five and a quarter feet. (laughs) (laughs) He's hard when he's dead. Yeah. Uh, We follow Lucy as she goes on to like Las Vegas, new town, new partner and then there are just whole scenes in the book where she, uh, we hear her thinking like this new partner's penis does not match up to Sonny. It's just not as big or big enough. She's very sad. And her friends respond Pamela, Pamela the ship, ship has, has sailed, sailed. <laughs> <laughs> For audiences listening at home, we plan that. <laughs> and then choreographed it terribly. <laughs> Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Zach Bornstein and Hallie Cantor for making the time and being good pals and helping get inside the heads of writers whose heads helped their movies be awesome. Speaking of awesome, our footnotes are a string of awesome stories of creative successes, uh, plus some of those fights that we talked about up top. Uh, those tales of authors hating what their directors and producers did, uh, you know, sometimes with good reason, but uh, the thing you would expect, we also have footnotes all about that, because uh, creation as a process, folks, goes a lot of different ways, uh, also a lot of different people involved. Also, you'll see links there to the Twitters and other creations of Zach and Hallie, because uh, they were great, and you should further confirm that thing uh, by checking out their stuff and following them. I-, I think you should, and you'll enjoy it. 
Something else to check out at the bottom of those footnotes is our thrilling live podcast. One is uh, is pretty soon. It's at the UCB Sunset Theater in Los Angeles on Saturday, February 23rd, 9 p.m. It's a show on Oscars Night Eve, right? So we uh, will not set up a tree or anything. That Eve is really only a Christmas thing, but you get it. And it will be, of course, about movies because uh, that's the time. That's when you do it. And then we're taking this show on the road from there. April is a very, very exciting month because April 11th, we will be in Chicago, Illinois. April 12th, we'll be in St. Paul, Minnesota. Both of those cities will get live podcasts at wonderful venues, Lincoln Hall, Chicago, Amsterdam Bar and Hall, St. Paul, that I'm really, really excited to put up. I hope you'll get a ticket and uh, help us uh, do the show uh, because usually audiences are such a part of it, as you'll hear uh, with any of our live ones that we put on the feed. So I hope I'll see you there. And either way, our theme music for this episode is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by Devin Bryant and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A thing used by some authors to deepen our connection with their writing and by other authors to just insist that wizards did not have toilets. They just did not have them. JK is an unparalleled genius and also know they had toilets. I'm sorry. That's how I feel about it. Uh, my Twitter account where I, I guess I should just tell her that I can, I can just at mention her. Anyway, my account is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitzagram and I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more cracked podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.